The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome to Full Core Press with Fanta and Adams, everybody, on this Wednesday, June 3rd, 2020. I'm John Fanta, and today we have a roundtable. In our times right now, it seems like talking about basketball would, would be wrong. Having said this, our basketball community is great in that it brings a lot of different people together, and we've got a couple of guys that I have the pleasure of being not only colleagues with but friends with that we want to talk. We want to get the ball rolling and, and have the conversation because right now that's what we can do. And the fact is it has to turn into action with the current social injustice issues that are still going on in our country. Hard to believe it's 2020 and we're saying that, but that is the reality of our world. Uh, my co-host Kim Adams coming from Philadelphia. We've also got Senior Associate Commissioner of Men's Basketball at the Big East Conference, Stu Jackson coming to us from New York City. And we've got Villanova national champion in 2016, former Wildcat Daryl Reynolds playing at Nova from 2013 to 17. He's coming to us from the Philadelphia area as well. So we will jump right in here. It is a conversation on the social injustice in our world. And Stu, we've talked offline uh, a bunch over the last 72 hours about the issues going on in our world. And I want to take us back to last week. What came to mind when you first saw the video of George Floyd with Derek Chauvin's knee on his neck? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly share the sentiments of, uh, you know, many Americans uh, after, you know, witnessing, you know, what was a horrific video, um, you know, which in and of itself was very surreal in terms of not really understanding in that moment what was happening only to realize that you know the young man's life was taken away which followed with you know emotions uh, asking yourself why uh being angry um you know questioning you know what is happening uh not only to black communities but our country as a whole and uh, it was a very difficult time. And, uh, you know, since that event, and the events really over the past three months as they related to uh, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and then ultimately George Floyd, where it was on full video display, uh, it really was, it was difficult to, to, to process. But since that time, uh, you know, I've had a, another set of wide range of emotions uh, that have affected me. Uh, as, you know, I have grieved with the rest of the country. Daryl, what's your reaction? Um, at first, shock, just because of the blatancy of it. Um, you know, we this obviously has been a problem in America for, for centuries. And over these past, I'll call it uh, 12 years, um, it's been heightened, you know, for several reasons. And you like you said, with, you know, Ahmaud, um Aubrey and, and Breonna Taylor, you had heard about it, but to see that in real time and to understand that that officer was completely aware that he was being recorded, to understand that there were other officers involved and uh, the one officer was standing there almost daring people to do something, that the blatancy of it was, a, it was sickening, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, not that murder in any way is okay or accepted, it's just, for him to be fully aware that that camera's right there and continue to do that was just, it was, it was a gut check. Cause it's like, this is, this is really how, um, you know, hate filled people feel and, and, and are, are going about, um, you know, getting out those feelings at this point. So it, it was sickening, I guess the best way to put it. And Daryl, so many of these recent cases that are incidents, murders that we're looking at have to, deal with with the police force uh whether it's brianna taylor 
whether it's George Floyd, whether it's many names that come before them. Um, mm-hmm. Can you can you describe what it's what it was like, what it still is like as a as a young black person growing up just with the police? Just what are your what are your feelings towards the police because of all that has gone on and that we're still continuing to see with these murders? Uh, to, I mean, to be completely honest, I have never directly um, had a, you know, a, a confrontation with a police officer that, you know, I could immediately blame on race. But I will say, as a young black person, um, you know, rather it's because of the color of my skin, rather it's because of the, the, the feelings, you know, that are kind of floating around now, I know that I shouldn't see a cop car and get nervous. You know what I mean? Knowing that I'm not doing anything wrong. I know that when I hear sirens, it's the fact that the initial reaction is a is your heart your heart rate picking up. Yeah, that's not how it should be. You shouldn't feel um, almost afraid of hearing or or you should be welcoming the presence of the police if you're not doing anything wrong. So the fact that, like you said, as a young black man, you hear a siren go off or you see a cop car get behind you, and the immediate feeling is just kind of like you know, fight or flight feeling that comes over you that I, I know enough to know that's not how it should be uh, at all, you know? You know, I mean, you know, Kim, I, I would add to that. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, Daryl is spot on. Uh, but I think people have to understand uh, people of uh, non-color have to understand what goes on in the family setting of black Americans in that another thing that should not be is that my daughter should not have to instruct my grandson on how to specifically behave uh, when he's faced with law enforcement, whether it's, a, a, you know, on the street, uh, at a traffic stop when he's old enough to drive, and, you know, to have to instruct him to, you know, verbal, verbally tell law enforcement exactly every movement that he makes, that I'm raising my hand, that I'm reaching my hand in my glove compartment mm-hmm. to get my mm-hmm. license and registration, that I'm not armed. Uh, you know, and this is what young black American men have to do and what black parents have to instruct in their homes. And that's just not a conversation that, you know, white America has, um, you know, with their, with their children, and that's wrong. And, you know, those types of instructions, feeling that anxiety when you hear sirens, and, you know, knowing that, uh, you know, you could be stopped by law enforcement and being questioned and throwing, being thrown in jail are not the only options. You may die. And, you know, that's a sad state of affair, affairs, you know, with, you know, bad law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, we hear we hear people saying not every not every cop is a bad cop. Um, but, you know, I've I, I, I've seen a video, actually, that I I thought spoke well Um and it, it said that that police is an industry where you can't have bad cops. And it's similar to to being airline pilots where you can't have bad pilots who say, oh, you know, today I'm just I'm going to crash the plane. Uh, I thought that was was a good descriptor. So for either of you guys, just what are the changes that need to happen in the the police system? Um, just different things that need to occur to start eliminating and making sure that there aren't racist cops within this presence. Um, I'll, I'll start if it's okay. Uh, for me, it's, it needs to be a power check. You know, at the end of the day, every other uh, office of power or every other, uh, you know, power entity in America has somebody else checking them. Maybe not, you know, obviously we see what's going on in certain offices, maybe not thoroughly enough, but there's somebody to check them. There's a balance of power. And with the police force, it doesn't seem to be that. You hear about internal affairs and things like that and investigations, but 
those get open and shut depending on, you know, um, where that where that investigation is. I think there needs to be a change as far as how long someone can be in a certain precinct um, or partners necessarily. At the end of the day, you're not going to just change everybody's mind and make them non-racist. But the idea that you have these groups of cops moving like this, like with George Floyd, that was four cops. You're telling me nobody in that, you know, in that group had the wherewithal uh, or the empathy or sympathy or, quite frankly, just the humanity to say this is wrong. You know what I mean? So if you have groups like that moving together and working together, that's an issue. If you diversify these police forces, you diversify these precincts, you shift around these cops the same way you shift around the president, Senate, uh, you know, Congress, the way, same way you shift around all these other entities of power, you need to do the same with the police force. And I think it needs to be somebody who closely monitors uh, the police force. And, and it needs, maybe it needs to be a new branch of government. You know what I mean? The DEA wasn't always around. The FBI wasn't always around until certain issues arose. But you need to have somebody policing the police because at the end of the day, human beings are always going to find a way to abuse power at some point. So you have to have somebody that once that starts to happen, it gets checked and not just the commissioner because the commissioner can be on the same page not just a senior officer because the senior officer can be on the same page, not just a district attorney because the district attorney might be bullied into not making a certain decision that has to be made to crack down on this. But I think it needs to be more of a, uh, the way you kind of move cups around and again, like it needs to be more of a shift in power when it comes to the police force. So you can't, you, you have to fragment and break up um, these individuals that obviously group together and say, all right, we're just, quite frankly, to call it what it is, a gang at this point. We just have a license to kill. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, also what Daryl's alluding to is the fact that there's, at least in my mind, a real need to, you know, begin reforming the entire criminal justice system. Um, I mean, I mean, by way of example, um, you know, I, I think that many of these ills can be corrected legislatively if you uh, alter or increase penalties for bad behavior in law enforcement. Um, you know, by way of example, like uh, lowering the bar uh, for, you know, prosecution of police when they exhibit bad behavior, because we've seen it all around the country. Oftentimes, you know, law enforcement uh, address, uh, you know, black males and, you know, in, in a way that appears to be wrong, but they're never prosecuted. And they're never prosecuted because of, you know, the legal, um, you know, loopholes and gymnastics that take, take place that never lead to an actual punishment. Uh, that needs to be changed, and it can be changed by lowering the bar. I, I mean, you know, when you talk about the criminal justice system, and the disproportionate uh, number of incarcerations of, uh, of, of black Americans compared to white. And, you know, and given the percentage of population <laughs> that black Americans make up in this country, you know, about 13%, and that in and of itself lets you know there's something going on that is wrong. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think one solution for, you know, for everyone in terms of sort of flattening out um, social injustice and racial, racial bias um, is to reform the justice system. And uh, I, I think that's a big key. Stu, you grew up in Reading, Pennsylvania in the 60s and 70s. When you think about those times to where we are right now, how would you compare what you remember about those times with what you're seeing today? Uh, yeah, John, I mean, the comparison is, is very distressing. Um, you know, uh, I grew up uh, as a teenager uh, in the 60s during the civil rights movement and uh, pre and post Vietnam War. And, um, you know, I'm from a town in Reading, which is uh, about 50 miles west of Philadelphia at the time. It was a city of about 120,000, uh, but it reflected, you know, the ills and the problems 
um, that many urban centers uh, had at that time. And I grew up in a household uh, with a father that was a community activist. And I can remember as a teenager in our house, uh, you know, days and nights uh, with our living room filled with, um, you know, loud voices uh, behind the civil rights movement, uh, angry faces, um, you know, uh, members of the Black Panther Party, um, you know, offering a different voice and hearing my father uh, trying to bring a sense of calm. And to witness that, it was stressful. Um, I asked a lot of questions. I gained some understanding as to why things were the way that they were and why black people felt that they needed to fight for their rights, albeit in different ways. But it was an interesting time. So when I say in comparison today that it's stressful, I, you know, what has happened or come to light even more the past three months, um, what has been distressing is I now realize that the same issues that we faced back in the 60s are the same issues we face here in 2020. And you come to the realization that little has changed. And that's a real stress point. Uh, it's an acknowledgement that, you know, systemic racism and social injustice are today what it was back then. And it really is a signal that my generation, you know, we've failed. We have failed. And, you know, so, I, you know, I've been fighting those types of emotions, uh, you know, over the past couple weeks. Uh, emotions like just dismay and anger and disappointment and failure um, as you know and I use my point of reference uh, as a teenager back in Reading Pennsylvania where all those things have cropped up again and it's been you know it's been a bit of a, a bit of a struggle Stu at the stage of, of where your generation is does that mean that Kim, Daryl, myself, that, that, it, that this really has to be initiated by the people that are around our age. Because I'm thinking to myself, I look to my parents, I look to people in their, their 50s, in their 60s. But I, I think to myself this week because I've tried engaging in dialogue with that generation. And I have found it to be much more difficult than the dialogue I've had with people around my age group. What do you make of that? Well, um, as, as distressed as I per, am personally and, you know, the results of the failures of uh, my generation centering around injustice and, and racism, uh, you know, your generation to me um, truly does offer a ray of hope. And I can say that with some confidence and credibility that, you know, Gen Xers, millennials, you are different than you know, uh, you know, whites that existed in the 60s. Uh, I see it in my own children in terms of their interactions with their friends. You think different. You think more progressive. I think the lines of race are more blurred, um, you know, with, with your generation, uh, John and, and Daryl and Kim. And that really, for me, gives me a lot of hope that change will happen. You know, yesterday I had an opportunity to participate in, you know, a protest. Uh, unfortunately, not for very long for, you know, only 20 blocks because I had to get back for a conference call. But, you know, to walk amongst, you know, those protesters, which was in the thousands here in New York City, you know, you look around and my goodness, <clears throat> you, you, you see people of all different races, all different shades of skin, uh, different genders, and it's just warming. And, and there's there something very powerful that, um, you know, gives you a sense of hope. I mean, even the fact that in some of these protests, 
you look at some of the law enforcement who are walking and protesting in solidarity with the protesters, that's just not something that I ever recall happened in the 60s. And those two things have really given me a sense of hope, uh, you know, through a difficult time. Daryl and Kim, you're in the Philadelphia area. I'm curious, uh-huh. Daryl, what, what have you seen? Have you participated at all? Uh, just your thoughts. Uh, b- before I jump in that, I, I just have to say something real quick. Uh, Stu, I don't necessarily think that your generation failed in any way because we're dealing with something that's so deep-rooted it's going to take a long time to get out of. Like we, we, we keep hearing the word systematic issue, and I don't think people understand how far that goes back. Like it literally goes back to the, the, the start of this country. You know, it's written in the Constitution that freedom for all, and obviously the people in that room writing it had slaves. Like that, you're talking about a fundamental ground level issue. So I don't think that, you know, anybody in the 60s necessarily failed because we wouldn't be where we are today without the, 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 you know, movement back then, which got rid of a lot of blatant things like Jim Crow. The issue we're dealing with now is like really peeling back up under that rug and getting all the dust is still kind of under there. But as far as the foundation work that was laid in the 60s and 70s, I don't think it's fair to say your generation is failed. Um, but as far as Philadelphia goes, I went to a protest the other day, um, you know, outside of right across from City Hall, where the protest pretty much was about removing that Frank Rizzo statue that they were guarding so heavily. Um, you know, Frank Rizzo was a commission, police commissioner and I believe an eventual mayor in Philadelphia, a political figure uh, who was, I'm not going to say outwardly racist, but for the 70s, he was outwardly racist as much as he could be. Uh, and enacted several things that just terrorized, you know, black communities. And that was something that people didn't understand why they're trying to tear down that statue as soon as the riots broke out the first day. And it was for that reason. Woke up this morning and found out they removed that statue. The mayor had apologized, said it was already on the docket, but because of this, it's been expedited and that's no longer there. Uh, So Philadelphia is definitely moving. I think it's ironic that we're coming up on Juneteenth and 4th of July um, and all these changes are being made in a place like Philly where a lot of this started. But I'm proud of Philly, to be completely honest. I don't know what Kim has to say on it, but I'm proud of Philly's effort so far. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been active here for a couple of days. You know, Daryl, we saw, I think, Saturday was the first big day of protests. Um, and then you think, you know, maybe that, that was it. But people have, have continued to protests i think probably you've seen the same images there have been some some harsh images to view uh in terms of people mm-hmm. being tear gassed and whatnot um so there's there's been positives there's been some some scary scenes but daryl i just wanted to go back uh to a, a couple things that Stu was saying and I, I agree with you i think it would be a disservice to so much work that has been put in by so many people to say that that generation has failed um, but Stu did say little has changed and then and said our generation seems a bit different. So, Daryl, what do you see? Uh, what What is important that our generation does so that when we're talking to our kids in 20 years, our grandkids in, in 50 years, that we, like Stu, we, we're not going to say little has changed. What can we do to make sure that things do change? I mean, I, I hate to put such a broad statement over, but continue to fight. You know what I mean? This is not something, quite frankly, this is not going to get solved just through this. We're, we're talking about, like I said, a systematic, uh, fundamental issue. Uh, but I think the way that we ensure that, you know, we say to our generation, nothing has changed, just like, you know, Stu's generation can say to us that they have, you know, worked is we have to continue to fight. We can't sit this one out or just kind of let this fizzle. I heard somebody say that, and it almost like, you know, I almost went to 10. It was like, it's going to just while or it's going to, you know, just kind of settle down. It's like, that's the issue. We get to this point and everybody just kind of returns to their normal lives. I think continuing the fight to make sure that systematic changes are made, that actual laws are changed, that actual legislation are changed. I don't care if it takes an amendment to the Constitution. You know, like several people have said already, it needs to be uh, a complete or not a complete overhaul, but a really big overhaul of the way the police force operates and their consequences for dealing with unarmed, um, you know, civilians and not just black civilians, unarmed civilians, period. 
Uh, you know what I mean? But I think continuing the fight and making sure that we don't just let this be, oh, a moment where everybody protested and everything went away. It's like keep this going until actual changes are made the same way that Stu's generation made sure that Jim Crow was abolished. You know what I mean? Or, you know, certain people were acknowledged in their civil rights efforts to stand as signals. And, and, and you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the best word to say to call those individuals, but it's understood that these people go down American history as people that changed it. I think the same thing needs to be done in ours uh, to ensure that we don't have to say to our, our kids and grandkids that, you know, we didn't change anything. Yeah, you know, Kim, I mean, I, I think there are several, you know, areas that, you know, people like yourself and, and myself continue to, to battle um, to really make changes. And I, I really feel that to re- seriously, to be able to change systemic, you know, racism, there are some areas that are very obvious that need to change. And we've already talked about one in terms of reforming the criminal justice system. But, you know, I, I mean, I look at another area is that, you know, just our public schools across the country and, you know, the state of education of, the, of, of America in relationship to the rest of the world. Uh, I mean, we're behind. I mean, it pales in comparison to many nations across the world. And, you know, I think one of the reasons is, is that, you know, our public school system is totally broken. And it's broken because, you know, our, our public schools, particularly in the inner cities, do not get funding because oftentimes funding in public schools is as of a direct result of property taxes. And it only stands a reason if you're in, you know, a wealthier neighborhood and your property taxes are higher, your public schools in that area are going to be funded better, which gives students, you know, more access uh, to resources and educational materials and, you know, having the ability to build their college resume with extracurricular activities. I mean, that's just a, a fact of the matter. I mean, I myself, made a decision to move into the school district I did with my kids because they spent $18,000 per student, uh, um, uh, you know, in that school district versus if I had put them in a New York City school where the funding is $7,000, you know, per student, that's a problem. So I, I think the public school system is one area that you can really, you know, point to that needs correcting. I, I think another big key and one that uh, another area that will come to light here over the next several months is just protecting voting rights. I mean, you know, we could be running into a situation under this current national administration whereby, you know, uh, they may tamper with people's rights to actually vote, uh, particularly in this COVID environment and the necessity in many areas to have to, you know, vote, um, you know, with uh, paper ballots from home. But if, if voting rights are taken away, and people don't have the ability to exercise their voice, uh, that's problematic. So, I, you know, and that in and of itself will lead to racial bias. You know, an, another area I, I think that is very key is just our healthcare system. And that has really come to light uh, here of late with, you know, du- during this coronavirus era where, er, era where a disproportionate number of people of color are affected and hospitalized and even die disproportionately to the number of, you know, whites that are affected and die. And it's because we make up the largest population of essential workers. We live in, you know, uh, living conditions, particularly in urban areas where you're in close proximity and, you know, the chances of spread of that virus are much higher than other areas of your locale or around the country. And, you know, oftentimes people don't have access, people of color don't have access, the same access, to health care. And in this country, when you have health care that's tied to employment, that is ridiculous. To me, health care is a human right. And, you know, that's not a Stu Jackson view. That's a world view because, the, you know, much of the rest of the world and their health care systems they have it right, we have it wrong. For-profit healthcare is not the way to go. And it, it in and of itself has been a source of systemic racism. So, you know, I, I mean, and if you just wanna even look at another area, I mean, look at just the ability for black people to sort of chase that American dream. I mean, how do you chase a dream 
in America that really uh, focuses on education and building wealth, you know, like real estate, uh, you know, when you can't get a loan and you can't get a loan because of the area that you live in. I mean, this has existed forever, you know, where insurance companies and banks have used, you know, redlined areas to make the lending decisions to, to prospective uh, to prospective clients. I mean, those institutions are more apt to lend to a poor white family than they are to a middle-class black family. So, I mean, that whole area with respect to, you know, mortgage lending, the ability and the access to build wealth is an area that, that really needs to be changed. And I, I, I think that, you know, those are, you know, potential solutions and areas that we can attack and much of it will happen at the legislative level, which unfortunately is a slow process, but it's, it may be the only process that we have available, the only nonviolent uh, process we have available to bring about change. Stu, my thought is, as you're talking about this legislative process, in your role at the Big East as the man in charge of men's basketball as a mentor to student athletes, whether it's the draft process that they can potentially go through to just their everyday college life. That's why the Big East has different programs to help them with that process. I'm curious here because you have dialogue with different conferences all over the country. And of course, at the NCAA level, in your role, what do you think can happen in the realm of college sports to help those student athletes get educated on this? No, it's a fair question, John. I mean, I think you have to, you know, we as college administrators and educators have to uh, engage our student athletes, uh, consistently educate them, and then do the best we can to lead them. And, you know, certainly during this time, this is yet another opportunity for individual institutions and conferences, um, athletic, uh, athletic conferences, to do just those three things, and, you know, engage, educate, and lead. And I don't know what form that looks like uh, or what type of programming that looks like, but, you know, we need to figure it out. And maybe the best place to start is to look at some of these potential areas uh, that we just discussed and changes that need to be made to minimize uh, social injustice and systemic racism. Uh, you know, maybe it's just something as simple as um, engaging them in a nonpartisan voter, you know, uh, education initiative, uh, you know, where students can have the ability to actually get out, roll their sleeves out, participate in programs to help educate people around voting rights. I mean, that's something that I think, you know, uh, engaged students can have some fun with and they at least feel like they're, you know, effectuating some change. Or maybe there's an initiative, initiative around, you know, our healthcare system that, you know, we can partner with that, again, uh, you know, leads our student athletes to a place where they are and feel like themselves and feel a sense of pride of trying to uh, uh, you know, evoke change. I mean, that, that, you know, but, you know, that's something we got to continue to work on and figure out what the best option is, but I think it really could help. Do you support the idea of election day being a, a mandatory off day in the NCAA calendar? Yeah, I, I, you know, I've heard that idea thrown around and yes, I, I would support it. I mean, wh why wouldn't you? Uh, it would only bring more focus uh, to the issue. Uh, it's, it's the same way, you know, you do sort of, you know, John, in your world and broadcast. I mean, there are no sporting events on the NCAA um, championship final. And, you know, the entire country uh, is focused on one event. Why wouldn't you do that with something that is important as, you know, uh, a day in November when people are exercising their right and power to vote? Absolutely. And just to stay on the intersection of of sports and the issues of injustice currently going on. I don't know if you guys saw this, but I saw an image yesterday, actually, that was here in Philly. And there was a, a young black man 
uh, they said his name was Khalil Gardner, and he was actually dragging a basketball hoop around Center City in an effort to unite people. And for me, that just really struck a chord because for me, I feel like through basketball, I'm, I've been able to connect with anyone, uh, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of age. And I was having a conversation with one of my black high school teammates and about some of the injustices she's faced. And I have a, a quote from her from our conversation. And she said, um, I was just telling friends how everyone should have to play team sports. It literally is the foundation to building well-rounded people and tolerance. That was from my my White Plains High School teammate, Simone Tharker. But I, I was completely on board with her. And Daryl, I'm just interested to see what you think about how athletes and former athletes are playing a part in all of this and and how they can play a part in the change moving forward. Yes, uh, I uh, I think that's definitely, you know, on the right track. I, I think making people you know, play, not making, but having people play team sports is a huge step. It's a huge step. And I think athletes using their voice is also a huge step. At the end of the day, there's some people, uh, I don't know if y'all ever saw the movie Do the Right Thing, but to me, everything always goes back to film and sports. And there's a part in Do the Right Thing where he's asking a guy who's, you know, a bit of a racist, who's his favorite actor? He said that he murdered. Who was his favorite athlete? Muhammad Ali. And he was like, yeah, they're not black, though. And that's the issue. You know what I mean? It's like you don't see these sports figures as binary. I've told people several times with me at Villanova, I was like, I don't feel comfortable speaking on certain issues because I'm viewed as a basketball player before I'm viewed as a black basketball player. You know what I mean? So I feel like if you're an athlete and you have any type of influence and you have a fan base that probably is diverse, probably is multicolored, then you should explain to them that you're a black athlete first. You're a black person first in the same way that you would tolerate me because my name is LeBron James or Donovan Mitchell or I'll reference some of our guys, Eric Pascal, um, who's doing a great job speaking up on this. The same way that they look at them as people first is the same way they need to look at, you know, everyday people as people first, not an athlete or a basketball player or a tennis player, but just a person before anything. Right. And and we've seen a lot of black athletes stepping up, whether through social media or a lot of them actually out at these protests. Uh, Jalen Brown drove from Boston to his hometown in Atlanta to organize one. Why is it important that these athletes are continuing to speak out? Because, like I said, they have the platform. They have the influence. It's certain people that aren't going to listen. I'm not going to listen to anybody but them. But, listen, all of us on this call understand how crazy sports are, uh, sports fans are. Like, it's, it's short for fanatics. You know what I mean? We care about sports more than a lot of things. And that's okay. That's something that, like you said, can unify people. But when it's time to really unify people and really, like, nail that message home of, listen, this is about human beings first, then – to me, that's the best way to do it. I love what he's doing. I love what Trey Young was out there uh, protesting. It's like, don't stay silent. There's certain people that I'm not going to say are only going to listen to y'all, but they could hear it from 10 regular black people and it not mean something. And in the moment they hear it from one of them, the message, it kind of resonates on a different level. So use your voice. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think to both your points, we have seen – black athletes and coaches continually protest. We have seen that many years before now. Uh, It is just as important, if not more important, that the white players and coaches stand with them together for this change to happen. And that's why I saw Chris Beard down in Texas lead his Texas Tech team on a protest earlier this week in in a very peaceful march. And I brought this point up over the weekend, and I, I just I've never thought it to be so true. And it, it's sad that it's come to this, but what has to happen in a systemic issue as large as this one is for the people with power, for no other reason than the fact that they are white, to share the same voice, to come together with the people that have unfortunately not had that same level of power and Stu, like you said, have ha- have been forced to, in their family system, have conversations with their kids, their grandkids, about the way that they're going to get brought up and how that's different than the white American. Uh, that, that those 
white Americans have that same level uh, of belief as those minorities. And, and at this point, I would say as a white American, if you are not having the conversation, if you are not reaching across the table, if we are not coming together, then what in the hell are we doing? Because that's Absolutely. just wrong. Failing to acknowledge Absolutely. or maybe saying, I'm not going to participate in this, or I will sit this one out, or I don't need to, to post a black square on, on whatever social media platform it is. Uh, I know it's just a social media movement, and I know a lot of change has to happen. That, that's not, that no longer should have never been, but it definitely is no longer acceptable, at least in, in, in this person's eyes. Yeah, I, you know, Thank you. you know, I, I, you know, one of the things that, and you bring up some good points. I mean, one of the things that I've been really proud uh, of, and Daryl and Kim, you may have noticed this as well, is I've been following very closely, and we all have the advantage of, you know, being on social media. I've been following just the posts and reading, you know, uh, articles about the different programs in the Big East Conference. And one thing that really comes through with respect to our programs has been the engagement our coaches have made uh, with their team and the, and, and the dialogue that's taken place. And obviously we aren't there, but they're, they're talking about uh, what you're referring to, John. They're opening up the conversation um, to a point where they're beginning to at least start to address and dare I say, attack um, the place you need to start to overcome, um, you know, systemic racism. And that is to just begin to break down each other's biases and acknowledge what they are and how you feel and, you know, what you're confused about, uh, you know, where you go from here, how you talk about race. And that has to come from players and it has to come from coaches which are going to be totally different uh, viewpoints depending upon, you know, your race. And I, I think those are great places to start. And, you know, Daryl mentioned a little bit earlier, I think we all have to acknowledge, you know, the impact of, uh, of slavery and what it's had on this country uh, for hundreds of years. And, you know, moving into the Jim Crow laws, I think all of those things need to be talked about. People need to educate themselves on just if for nothing else to understand the foundation from whence all this ridiculousness called racism has come from. And that, that's only going to happen, you know, by conversations. And I've just felt really proud, uh, you know, for our coaches and our conference, because it certainly appears that they're engaging in those really important conversations. And Stu, you, you talk about, you know, a lot of these conversations are going on. I, I personally have had them with my immediate family in the past few days. And it, it seems like there's a lot of momentum right now. Maybe that in part has to do because there, there is no sports and everyone's focused on this. Um, I do think, you know, with social media, we, we can get a sense that everyone's on board. Everyone wants to help. But what I, you know, social media is acknowledgement. And now, all of us that are saying we want to help, it, it's time to act. So with this hope, with this optimism we've seen in the past few days, what needs to happen to make sure that this continues, that this just isn't some social media trend, that people are still working to fight for this a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now? I mean, Kim, you're talking about sustainability. And it's incumbent upon, uh, again, I mentioned before, it's incumbent upon us as administrators, as educators, um, you know, in, in, in higher education, uh, which is, you know, our area, that you build that sustainability through, you know, programming uh, that is consistent, um, that doesn't die. It, it can't just be, as you said, a conversation today that goes away tomorrow. Uh, this is something that's going to need focus, resources to make sure it continues for this class and the classes that come after it. Uh, if you truly are serious about 
effectuating change. And to your point, I really get the sense that, you know, we're in a time where that could happen. Um, you know, I, I was on a, a conference call yesterday with the athletic directors in the Big East Conference, and there was one particular athletic director that just made himself vulnerable and acknowledged that, you know, what he has communicated to, through to his children and the lessons that he tries to teach through sports, you know, being a part of a team sport and how to engage others and, 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 you know, performing a role isn't enough. And he now realizes that if his children are going to be successful, they need to talk about and address, and address race. And I thought that was profound. You know, he made himself vulnerable to let everyone know that he needed to personally change. And those types of statements, those types of stories are impactful, and those aha moments are impactful and hopefully will fuel, um, you know, consistent and sustainable change uh, by people that have the ability to effectuate programming and education and leadership uh, for, you know, young student athletes. Well, as we begin to wind down this conversation, which, which has been, so insightful, and I think one of the one of the things that I've seen this week, and I think there's no time like this one better than to listen. To listen, we often talk, don't think about what we're talking about. Listening is so important during this, and I've enjoyed listening to everybody here in this conversation. Daryl, any final thoughts? Maybe something that you haven't brought up yet that you think is necessary in these current times. Uh, I mean, I, I guess to, to sum it all up, it's just educate yourselves. I've had several friends of mine from different races, you know, reach out and say, what can I do to, to help? What can I do to, um, you know, lend a hand? Or what can I do to, to better understand you? And it's like, educate yourself. That's the beauty of this social media. That's the beauty of the age that we live in. You can Google something and immediately find it out. You know, how many people understand what the 13th Amendment is and what that means to this. Um, Educate yourself on what the system is. You know, people hear that word thrown around, like I said, and they think, oh, you're just talking about a social construct or, you know, a belief of several people. And it's like, no, we're talking about an actual legal system that's in place that is very, uh, it mirrors, you know, slavery in a lot of ways. There's too many residuals from slavery. They said they're not going to just end that. So you have things like the 13th Amendment that allows the criminal justice system to be set up in a similar way. I think. You know, we have all this stuff at the, this, the, 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 our fingertips, and it's amazing that people now more than ever aren't using it. For so long, the thing was education. People didn't understand what was going on. People couldn't see what was going on. We have social media now to see what's going on because we all know that if we depended on these news outlets, you wouldn't really see the back and forth between these protesters and these police or, you know, the difference between a, a, a rioter a looter, you know, and a protester. Like, so we have all those things, but take it a step further. Read up on these laws. Understand how this got to where it is. It's all in writing. It's all in books. But I think once enough people become educated about it, now it's like, all right, now you can start to mobilize and really move towards, I'm not going to say real change because all this is real change, but actual legal change and actually, you know, um, making sure that this system is dismantled from a legal standpoint. I think that's just, to me, is the, is the biggest part. Like, truly do your homework on educating yourself on why things are the way they are right now. Stu, a final thought? Yeah, you know, John, uh, you know, just I, I think we're in a very uh, turbulent time right now, and I always believe that out of term, tur turbulent times and times of conflict that positive change can actually come out of it. And, um, I, I think all of us uh, uh, feel that way. I think there is a sense of hope for change uh, going forward, but each of us fundamentally uh, just needs to acknowledge uh, what needs to be done and, and take like the next step, John, the next step. And that next step, uh, you know, I, I think for me, you know, I came across an old quote uh, by, you know, an icon of mine, uh, as I was growing up, and it was, um, you know, the great Angela Davis who said, in a racist society, 
it's not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. And, and what she's referring to is the fact that there are a lot of great people in this country, uh, people who for so long have said, hey, you know, um, I, I love all people. Uh, I'm not racist. It's not enough to just not be racist. You have to fight and be against racism to really bring about change. Um, we all know that the lives that, you know, black people and people of color, uh, we know that it's bad. And none of us that, you know, I mean, and, 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 you know, white people, people that aren't of color know that it's bad. They, you know, they don't want to live those lives. But I think everybody just has to step up and say, okay, if that's true, then I can't accept the way things are now. And then I think you'll be able to see some really true change. Kim? Uh, I mean, I just, first of all, thank you two for coming on because I know it's, it's not the easiest to always talk about. And John and I were really here to learn and to hopefully pass this along to others who could learn from it. So we, we thank you for coming on and speaking so openly and honestly. And, and I just echo what you said a little bit earlier, John, that white people need to start realizing that we are a part of the solution. Um, and what, what Stu said about our generation failed, I, again, I don't think it failed, but maybe it failed because white people didn't do enough because the black people were putting in the work, but now is the time where everybody has to put in the work. And I, th I think that's a great quote, Stu, what you just said. It's not enough to not be a racist. We have to fight against the racist people to make sure that they're not in positions of power in positions where they can kill people, which is what is going on right now. And it starts with the conversations. Like I said, sometimes it might be hard to have these conversations with the people closest to you, with your family, with your best friends, with your coworkers, but that's where it needs to start. And it can't just be posting a black square on Instagram. And then in two months, when you hear a friend make a racist comment, you better speak up. So this is something like we've heard sustainability thrown around. This is just the beginning. And we all have to push forward together for a long time. And not just when small changes start happening, but when changes start happening, we need to continue to push forward and just keep building up change. I'll echo Kim. Thank you so much, Stu. You can follow Stu on Twitter, at StuJackson32, the Senior Associate Commissioner of Men's Basketball at the Big East. Follow Daryl Reynolds uh, at DRay, the Director. Great follows on this and have lended some Really, really outstanding insight. And I'll end simply with this. Now more than ever, we need to have the conversation. We need to improve as listeners. We need to turn words into action. And more than ever, we have to do it together. Thanks so much for listening to this discussion. I hope that you come away learning something and ready to join us and be together and make a change. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.